thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith and in this week's programme, it's Q&A time. Have NASA found life on Mars or are they being misled by methane? Why isn't the UK vaccinating children against COVID-19? And what's COVID-19 going to do to the Olympics? The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. And with us this week, we have exercise physiologist and world record holder Dan Gordon, He's also represented the UK at the Paralympics, but these days he uses his science knowledge at Anglia Ruskin University to work out how to make the body go faster. Have you invented Superman yet, Dan? Not quite, but perhaps we're going to see Superman or Superwoman over the next few weeks in in Tokyo. Well, we'll be asking you more about the Olympics. I'm going to be very interested to hear your perspective on what the experience will be like for those athletes who are heading off over there. Uh, Next door to Dan, wildlife biologist Eleanor Drinkwater's back, and she's now a doctor. Congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) Last time you were on the programme, actually, you force-fed a top chef, a top TV chef, crickets, (laughs) and you told him he had to feed them to his clientele in his restaurant. Yes, you you mean I introduced him to the joys of of eating insects. That's what you mean, right, Chris? (laughs) You were making the point that insects are a really quite good way of converting stuff we can't eat into protein that's good for us. Exactly. And and not only that, but also it's a brilliant way of being able to produce protein so much more efficiently. So everyone should get out there and eat some bugs. You also turned up with a giant land snail called Sherlock Holmes, which um, <laughs> I threatened to eat and that you were less happy about that. <laughs> that that's true. That's true. Uh, and, and also uh, Snailer Swift as well, who's, who's his partner. <laughs> also with us, Richard Hollingham, who's one half of the Space Boffins duo. They make the Space Boffins podcast. It's now been going over 10 years. Happy birthday, Richard. Thank you very much. It's been a big week, of course, for you, because this morning you've been watching the race for space, people doing suborbital flights. Incredibly exciting. I've just finished watching that. And I've just had some ice cream as well, so I'm, I'm probably overexcited. Over-exuberant because of a Over-exuberant, sugar over-excited, yeah. And 50 years since Apollo 15. Yeah, it's my favourite Apollo mission. Um, so I really want to talk about that in the next hour. Well, we'll hopefully give you the opportunity. And also, really lovely to have with us um, my TV sidekick, and that's Linda Bald, who specialises in public health at the University of Edinburgh, and she has become a major hit on the telly since the pandemic struck, offering viewers her calm and sensible advice, complemented by, I have to say, and you've, you've done the same again this week, Linda, a wonderful selection of flowers. You're better known for your flowers than you are for your public health. 
Well, that's right. But as you know, we're called Naked and Bald together, Chris, where that's the, the name of our duo, which uh, we think will be a, a festival act in the future. <laughs> but uh, no, the flowers are are really you're very popular. I think the thing is that we've gone through such a horrible time around the world over the last 15, 16, 18 months, and people want to see something that makes them smile. So for me, it's been really nice just to have some flowers in the background. And I have to be honest, I didn't know loads about flowers. In fact, when I was a child, my father used to drag us out gardening, and I didn't like it. But now I'm a big flower fan. And I've got one of those fantastic apps you can put on your phone where you can identify plant when you're out and about. So when I see a flower, I don't know, I just use that. So how does that work then? You take a picture of the, the, the leaves or the petals or both? Yeah, you take a picture of the flower or the plant and then looks for what it is. It gives you a Latin name, gives you loads of information about the plant. If you have one yourself, how to keep it healthy. And it's really informative. Right. Well, before we dive into the questions, we have, as we always do with these sorts of programmes, got a guess who quiz, which is running through the programme. Now, the way this works, I'll give you clues across the hour. And if you're listening at home, then see if you can beat our panel to the diagnosis. In other words, the identity of this mystery thing. So listen up. Here's your first clue. It's a sound clue. And it sounds this thing like this. So what or who made that sound any ideas richard no idea at all i mean it could be a it could be anything from an old gramophone record to some sort of scurrying animal so i'm i'm keeping an open mind at this stage yeah it's a, a thing or an animal yeah that really narrows it down thank you yeah. for that well look um let, well let's stay with you richard because we've got this question from tim who has said well why have we got this sudden race for space on the part of people like richard branson jeff bezos elon musk why are they all doing this right now well, they've been doing it, actually, to be fair, for the last 10, 20 years. It's, it's taken a long time. And I think it's more coincidence than anything else. And also COVID, the fact that they got to, to this stage now. And, and space tourism's actually been around for quite a long time. We had Dennis Tito um, flying Richard Garriott. These multi-millionaires flew on Soyuz um, back at the early part of the of the century, other companies have gone. The ones that have sort of survived the space tourism, Virgin Galactic. You had Richard Branson go up the other week. Um, we just had Jeff Bezos um, fly in his uh, spacecraft, ten minute flight. That will cost you probably about three hundred thousand dollars. We've now got new entrants into this as well. Um, we're talking about orbital flight now so you know got these two suborbital flights with uh, so basically you go up and then you come back down again a parabolic flight with virgin galactic with their space plane and blue origin with their spacecraft which was i mean i have to say uh, if you've got a spare 10 minutes and you haven't watched the flight absolutely watch the flight it's very you you were watching that today weren't you i was watching that today uh oldest person to go into space wally funk she's 82 she was one of the mercury 13 uh, so these were astronauts who were took part in a private project to see if women, if women could go into space back in the 60s. Uh, NASA rejected the idea. The government rejected the idea. Women didn't get to fly in, in space with, with NASA until uh, the 1980s. Uh, the first um, American woman in space, Sally Ride. And of course, the Soviet Union had Valentina Tereshkova. So Wally finally got to fly in space. What's extraordinary, uh, Wally is... Um, uh, is a friend of 
uh, of ours and um, she's actually stayed in this very house where I am right now and she's just gone into space and just seeing her come out of the capsule you know just exuberant was just so fantastic so, uh, so she would have experienced weightlessness when she was she up there would, yeah so it's a bit like a roller coaster with these suborbital flights so it's when you go over the bump on a roller coaster I really hate roller coasters I probably shouldn't go into space when you go over the top and you've got that feeling of weightlessness that's what they would have experienced but with the uh, Blue Origin I think it was about four minutes of weightlessness they had Virgin similar amount of time maybe slightly longer so it's the parabola that does that with the weightlessness what did um, they say when when the pair of them Jeff Bezos and and Wally Funk when they when they returned to Earth did they give any comment uh, well, they just exuberant. It was a lot of, this is fantastic. What an amazing thing. <laughs> what he said at one point, it felt like only five minutes. Like she's complaining. It's still space. You'd never guess you're pretty positive, Richard. You're pretty buzzing. <laughs> so, Eleanor. Oh my goodness. I just think it's so excited. Like I'm a bit of a space nerd and I just think it's so cool. But like, this is a very serious question. Like, hypothetically, in like 10 or 20 years time, how cheap are these prices going to get? That is an interesting question because the people behind these projects, I mean, they have put millions into it. They liken it to the origins of aviation. So, you know, you had the Wright brothers fly, you then had biplanes, you had a uh, First World War really accelerated things, but civilians weren't flying. Perhaps they were flying in maybe a little short hop, little sort of tourist flight in the, maybe the late 20s into the 30s. But aviation didn't really take off until late 50s, 60s, and of course, with low cost airlines now. So, you know, the costs of spaceflight are way more than the costs of a plane, but there is a comparison there and you think if you started mass producing this sort of technology you can see how the price could come down and come down and come down it will certainly be down to the thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands so there you go eleanor watch this space i think is the verdict isn't it well back down to earth with a little bit of a bump linda the uk has reached what's widely dubbed freedom day in inverted commas the the who have criticized this move other countries have too. New Statesman have got an article that says it's uniquely dangerous as a, a manoeuvre. The rest of the world is, is glued to it with morbid fascination, rather like an episode of Love Island. Um, Sean has been in touch. He's wondering, what actually is our UK strategy then? And, and what's the evidence it's going to work? Well, I think Sean asked a really good question. I guess a lot of us in public health have been asking, what's the UK's strategy all the way through it? I mean, I think the UK, like many countries in Europe and perhaps North America at the beginning, didn't know what to do and maybe prepared for the wrong pandemic. There's mentions of they were preparing for a pandemic, perhaps with something a bit like influenza with flu. Uh, So I think we've kind of been lurching through different strategies, which are not the same as, for example, Southeast Asian countries who'd experienced previous epidemics um, where they had good contact tracing. They knew they need to ramp up testing. They need to look about look at their borders because this virus is something that people pick up and then they transfer it to other people. And a really good place to do that would be, for example, if you're traveling from one country to another, of course, you're going to take it there. So the UK has not had a clear strategy at all. And the question now is, I think what's happening is we're merging two different narratives or stories or beliefs about how to deal with this. There's a camp of scientists quite a small one but they still exist that say well what you really need to do with an infection like this is let it go through the population so people get infected who won't be at risk or will be at lower risk and that's particularly younger groups and they would then build up natural immunity and then there's another group who think well actually we don't want anybody to get this virus so we need to uh, get everybody vaccinated and keep quite 
tight restrictions on households mixing, so kind of lockdowns longer than we currently are. And the UK government's tried to meet somewhere in the middle. So we've had two big lockdown periods, three depending on where you were in the UK. And now they've decided because it's the summer, they're going to open things up when you've got all of the adult population who've been offered the first dose of a vaccine and two thirds, almost two thirds who've had a second dose. Um, So that seems to be the current plan. But I guess the really challenging thing about it at the moment is we are opening up so-called Freedom Day in England with all legal restrictions lifted at a time where we have over 50,000 cases a day and projected to go up to over 100,000 and some of our hospitals are under strain. So it's really, really tough. And would you therefore say that, in fact, it's the wrong manoeuvre? Well, I think there's there's different harms from this virus. And I think all young people um, in particular will know that the harm to them, small numbers have had their health harm, but they've lost education, social contacts, um, lots and lots of restrictions. And then, of course, you've had jobs that have been lost. The employment has suffered. People have had, have had mental health issues they've had to deal with. These are other kinds of harms. And then we've been cut off from our loved ones who live in other countries and haven't been able to travel. So I think the government is really emphasizing that at the moment. If you were just looking at my field, public health, and the priority for us is to protect the health of the whole population, and the health of the whole population is under challenge from a pandemic, you would deliver more vaccines, you would keep restrictions in place for longer until we were more confident about the way ahead. That's not the path the government has chosen. And now we're in a big natural experiment. The world is watching and we'll see what the outcomes are. Thanks, Linda. And indeed, I guess one way or the other, we are going to find out, aren't we? Another kind of big experiment that's going on, Dan, to you, the Olympics. This was a casualty of last year's coronavirus pandemic, wasn't it? But now the Olympics is back on. Tokyo are hosting. It's not going to be normal, though, is it, by any stretch of the imagination? One commentator put it to me just yesterday that this must be the lowest key build up to the Olympics that we've ever seen. Yeah, and I think if you ask most people in the general public, are you aware the Olympics are taking place? I, I suspect most people would be unaware. I mean, there's been very little in the media. There's been very little push through the broadcasting organisations about it. And it's not surprising. I mean, you look at the way the Olympics are going to operate. It's a very, very different environment. There will be almost no crowds in the stadium. The velodromes will be empty. The pools will be empty. And I think they're allowing for some of the sports very small numbers of, of spectators in. And then, of course, we've got the fact that the medal ceremonies will not be standard medal ceremonies. The, uh, the participants are, in fact, going to award themselves the medals and they are not allowed to kiss the medals. Even with the opening ceremony, which is always a massive affair, it's kind of which country can outdo which country, is going to be a very low-key affair. And so I think it's going to be a very, very low-key game. And there have started to already be, not outbreaks, but there are cases of COVID within the Olympic Village arising already. I suppose one incentive to win a medal is that those precious metals are naturally antimicrobial, aren't they? So you, you could use your medal for that if it came to it. Um, are, are they going to have a Paralympics this year as well? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, at the moment, yes, it's, it's scheduled to follow within a couple of weeks of the Games. But concerns have also been raised because a lot of the Paralympians are in what we would consider more of the at-risk population groups. Mm. Well, that, well, that was my so, point, that we're yeah. going to have groups of people who are potentially a bit more clinically vulnerable. They're also probably going to have more of an entourage of supporting people who they need to help them do their day-to-day things, aren't they? Absolutely. So it's, a, it's an even bigger issue for them. It's a bigger issue. It's, it's a much bigger risk. And I think it will be a, a wait and see. If the Olympics goes off without a relative hitch, I think we see the Paralympics happening. 
Richard? Yeah, I just wondered about, you talked about the, the lack of atmosphere, the lack of crowds, what the psychological impact of that is on the, on the athletes. I suppose if I give you the reverse answer, the effect of London, when we hosted the games in London, you saw the effect of a home crowd and 85,000 people in the stadium and athletes like Mo Farah saying that really had he not, had not had the crowd when he won his second gold medal, he would he probably wouldn't have medaled at all. There is something about it, isn't it, that we thrive and people thrive on that kind of environment. And that's where we get these superstar performances happening. I just think it's going to be a very, very strange atmosphere. The officials aren't allowed to cheer. They're not allowed to do the haka in the rugby sevens anymore. So even the haka's become a casualty of COVID. Thank you very much for that one, Dan. From baffling British weather Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Get the latest episodes by subscribing to the Naked Scientists specials feed wherever you get your podcasts. Or find all of our In Short episodes at thenakedscientist.com slash short. You're listening to The Naked Scientist and today we have a panel of experts who are taking on your science questions and if there's something you've always wanted to know, why not give us a try? You can email questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com You can tweet at Naked Scientist or you can go to our website nakedscientist.com forward slash question and there's a form you can fill in there. Still to come, is it just mammals or do other animals breastfeed or suckle their young? The NASA astronauts that took things into space that they shouldn't have, what happened to them? And COVID-19 vaccines for children, why the UK isn't taking that path? We'll find out. Meanwhile, remember we've got a guess who quiz running through the programme. I told you that this mystery thing sounds like this. Here's clue two. I am slightly strange because my mouth is at the bottom and my anus is at the top of my body. Eleanor? It definitely has to be something aquatic. I'm thinking the first sound which we heard, I'm definitely, it gave me fish farting vibes, very strong fish farting vibes. So I'm thinking it's something aquatic, an animal which perhaps farts. Mm, Okay, I'm not going to comment. It's not right, but, but we liked it. And I can see on Zoom that Dan was very much tickled with that. Eleanor, since you have put your head above the parapet, uh, Linda, not our Linda who's with us, but another Linda, has been watching reports recently of, of elephants being returned, having bred in captivity in the UK to a park in Africa. She's wondering, do animals have personalities, some of which might be more suitable for this sort of rewilding or returning to the wild sort of thing to establish new communities in the wild? Are animal personalities taken into account when people are doing these sorts of conservation efforts? This is a wonderful question. So thank you so much for sending it in. Animal personality as a field is kind of still very rapidly developing. And and for me, it's just a really, really exciting area. And it is it is a really big question. There's been a few really interesting studies done looking at the personality of animals and how they survive post-translocation. So, but the, the problem is it's quite complicated. So for example, they took a bunch of swift foxes and they released them and the bolder ones tend to perish more quickly which I guess they they you know they're not afraid of predators they're not afraid of humans however 
on a separate study on turtles, they found that the more explorative ones tended to do much better. And then a third study on Tasmanian devils suggested that the shy ones did worse. And so it seems to be the case that perhaps personality is very important, but it's very kind of context specific. You know, what context are these animals going in? And, you know, how does that context affect what will be a useful survival strategy? And then on top of that, how do the different personalities interact together? Because if you have a group of animals with different personalities, individuals within that group will affect each other. It's not just that you have half bold and half shy and you'll get a halfway house. Actually, it's much more complicated than that. So it's a really fascinating question at the moment. And I think it's one that's kind of still under the microscope. And so if we can get a better handle on that, then it might be able to kind of help us to understand how we could use this for conservation. Eleanor, in terms of animal personalities and thinking about the experience of being in captivity, is there a common feature in terms of how animals' personalities might change as an experience of that? Is it cuts across species when we then look at contrasting that with how they would be in the wild? Personality is a bit complicated in how it's determined. So you do have an underlying genetic component, but there is also evidence that um, the developmental conditions of an animal can affect its personality. So, for example, if you take um, crustaceans and you put them in a completely barren tank without any enrichment, um, they don't behave like an animal that's grown up with a very enriched environment. Um, they don't know to use shelters or or kind of have the bold, shy um behaviors that we might expect. So that's one thing. Another one, which is also fascinating, is studies in birds have shown that the level of stress that individuals are under when they are in the nest will have a big impact on how they then develop and what their personality might be like in later life. If you're thinking about that in the context of how one might be keeping an animal in captivity, thinking about what stress this animal might be on, it might be under less stress than it is in the wild, or it might be under more stress than it is in the wild, and what impact that might have. Thanks, Elena. Richard, over to you. Wolfgang's been in touch, who I presume has also been watching Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos head off into space. And he's wondering at what altitude does microgravity or weightlessness actually kick in, if, if any altitude at all? Well, as you move away from any object, gravity is going to decrease. So if you were in deep space, for example, away from any planets, away from any black holes, stars, anything that would, would have a lot of gravity, then you would be weightless. You would be able to float around. In the International Space Station, there's only about 90% of the the gravity on Earth. So there's actually something else going on here, um, what they call microgravity in space. And actually, if you were on the International Space Station or on one of these parabolic flights, the astronauts are in freefall. So with a parabolic flight, you're going up, over, round, out of the atmosphere and back down again. In that period of the top of the parabola, you've got weightlessness. You're falling back down to Earth. So you've got the weightlessness. It's like going in a roller coaster. With the International Space Station, what's happening there is you're falling around the Earth. So it's because the space station is just going so fast that it's never going to hit the ground. And and therefore, it's not so much about the altitude. It's more about how long you're falling for. So when you've got these craft climbing up, such as Wally Funk would have experienced when we recorded this programme today, she would have gone up, gone over the top of the the, the roller coaster, as it were, and started to come down, the higher she went, the longer she would have had to fall for and therefore experience weightlessness. But if she'd gone to a less high height, she could still have felt weightless. It just wouldn't have lasted so long. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, with that flight, you had about four minutes of, of weightlessness. Back down to earth with a bump, which hopefully these people trying to achieve or a space flight are not going to do. The COVID situation again, Linda. The UK is in the grip, not just of a pandemic. We're now in the grip of what's being dubbed a pingdemic. There's over a million people confined to their homes right now because the COVID-19 app that the UK government are running has told them they've been in contact with someone and they should stay home. What is going on? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? And in fact, in a single week, over 500,000 people got a ping, a little message on that app and were advised self-isolate. So these people are people who have been contacts of what we call the index case, which is the first positive case. So somebody tests positive, they have the virus, and then the app finds out who they've been close to normally around less than two meters for 15 minutes or more. There's other ways of identifying contacts where you would ask the person who is the positive case, who have they been in contact with. The reason this is happening is just because, as I was saying earlier, we've got so much infection in this country, over 50,000 cases at the moment. Just to put that in another context, that's 1% of the UK's population. Um, it's about one in 100 people, even lower than that in some parts of the UK. So if you then multiply, say, when we're not in lockdown, I might have on average 10 contacts in that week. Um, and so you can see that that's what adds adds up the numbers. And um, the government is talking about changing that. Singapore is also discussing this in some other countries. If we're going to live alongside COVID, particularly moving out of pandemic to endemic, we're still going to have people who test positive who might have to self-isolate. But can we, for their contacts, give them regular testing instead uh, so that we know whether they they will develop the disease COVID-19 or not? Because actually most contacts of positive cases don't actually go on to develop it in these contact tracing systems. So let's look ahead. I don't think it's going to continue indefinitely. But for the moment, that's the system that we have. Anyone been pinged on the panel? Earlier, not 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 recently, luckily, but but I was very impressed by the, the lovely people who would call up and, and check in and, and check I had enough food and, and everything was, was okay. I was very impressed by the, the call handlers on, on Ah, so on you got the you got the phone call to say yes. you've been in contact. Did you actually get COVID or did you escape? No no no, I didn't know I didn't I didn't get COVID. But, but you did uh, get reassuring phone calls about are you alive? Exactly. It was it was very reassuring. How, I didn't realise they did that. That's quite nice, isn't it? How did you find not being able to leave the house for ten days then, Eleanor? That's tough, isn't it? Yeah, I found it very challenging. And um, you know, I, I live in a flat without a garden and that kind of thing. So I think it's very it is very challenging kind of psychologically, and I'm sure a lot of people have found that. Richard. Does this mean that the pandemic or is there a point where the pandemic becomes out of control or do you never want to say that i mean you know because test and trace can only work to a to a certain degree with a certain number of people when you get a certain number of cases you just say well you do that that whole idea of sort of let it rip through the population yeah well actually in the uk's response that was part of the story early on richard in that one of the reasons why the uk government didn't scale up contact tracing say last spring um, in a way other countries does because they had so many infections early on they just didn't think it would be viable so when you do have a lot of infection it's really difficult it's easier to contact trace when you have far fewer numbers so, you know, there's a, there's a big question about that. And we can see the performance of the system is taking longer for people to be identified. And just final point on this, on the pinging, a lot of people who are getting pinged now, they're not being advised to isolate for 10 days. They're being advised to isolate for say, three, four or five days, because actually it's 10 days from the day they came in contact with a person who's positive. And if contact tracing is under strain, it's taking longer to let the contacts know. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. 
But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Now, in this episode, I'm joined by a bunch of experts who are taking on the science questions you've been sending in. With me are public health guru, Linda Bold. We've also got exercise physiologist and Paralympian and world record holder, Dan Gordon. Creepy Crawley and wildlife expert. She's not a Creepy Crawley, she's a Creepy Crawley expert. Eleanor Drinkwater. And we also have space science junkie and journalist Richard Hollingham with us. Now, let's return to our Guess Who competition. I played you the noise. I'll remind you what this thing sounds like. I gave you the clue that it's upside down. Its bottom is at the top and its mouth is at the bottom. And Eleanor said, this sounds aquatic to me. Well, your next clue, I have got hundreds of ball and socket joints that help me walk. Linda, any idea of what this might be? Is it a centipede or a millipede? No, it's not. Eleanor was on the right track when she said something marine. Don't worry, though. Another clue is on the way. Perhaps you'll get it the next time, Linda. And how are you all doing at home? Have you got it yet? What we always do when we have one of these shows is we have a little quiz midway so everyone can have a breather and we can test the metal of our panel in a different way. So we've got two teams, Dan and Richard, you're going to be team one and Linda and Eleanor, you're going to be team two. And you can, of course, confer. It is the Tokyo Olympics, so I've got an Olympic-inspired quiz for you. Dan and Richard, you're going first. Round one is long distance. So, if Elon Musk's rocket goes off course one day and it takes him to Mars by mistake, how long, Dan and Richard, would his Mayday radio signal from Mars take to get back to Earth? Is it A, 20 minutes, B, 40 minutes, or C, 60 minutes? What do you reckon? Uh. It depends on the distance between the the planets at any one time, because obviously the planets move move around the sun and there's distances between Earth and uh, Mars change. I'll go for 20 minutes on one way. Wow. And, and Dan, are you are you in agreement or are you deferring oh, well, to Richard? I, 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 I will bow to the superior knowledge on this, but I, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking back to my HG Wells and I was trying to think about what in the world and how long. I don't know. I was going, I was going the other end of the spectrum, 60 minutes, but I'll, I will bow to my, uh, uh, my compatriot and his superior knowledge. Dan, you made the right call because it is ta-da, 20 minutes. It does vary, Richard's right, because Mars is between 78 million and 378 million kilometres away from the Earth because uh, at some points in its orbit it's close to us, at other points in its orbit it's on the other side of the solar system. And so therefore signals from Mars to the Earth can take anything between 3 and 22 minutes to get back to the Earth. So uh, 20 minutes was the closest answer. That's the right one. Uh, One point to you two. Linda and Eleanor, your question. When Apollo 15, and you'll see, Richard, why you didn't get this question, when Apollo 15 made it to the moon this week, 50 years ago, how long were their radio signals taking to get back to the Earth? Was it 0.5 seconds, 2.5 seconds, or 12.5 seconds? What do you both reckon? Well, I think it wasn't that long, actually. If you look at the, this is, I'm getting my knowledge from watching the film, (laughs) which I don't think is very reliable. But there's sort of a pause, isn't there, when they're hearing from the astronauts. 
I kind of feel that the laws would say that it's probably not the middle answer because it was the middle answer when you when you asked the boys. <laughs> I would say it's probably 2.5 or 12.5. What do you think, Eleanor? I, I, I'm thinking it's going to be on the longer end of the spectrum. Yeah. Going okay. Back quite a long Sh- way. Shall we go for 12.5 then? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's risk it. Richard, the answer is? I'm going for 2.5. You would have been right. It's oh. 2.5 seconds. Sorry. Linda and Eleanor, that's a uh, 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 for you, I'm afraid. It was two and a half seconds. Right, see if you can redeem yourselves on the next round. Round two, we're on to weightlifting now. Heavyweights, Dan and Richard, as you are now, in the lead with one point. Relative to their body size, which of these animals can lift the most? A, dung beetle, B, an eagle, or C, a gorilla? See, I'd be tempted on the dung beetle. Dung beetle, I would have thought. Yeah. I think I would have thought. I mean, I know the gorilla is the gorilla is pretty strong, but I mean, the gorilla is pretty hefty. I can't. I can't think. I think we can rule the the gorilla out. I mean, the eagle can lift quite large prey, but there's something about that dung beetle, the amount of and the size of the dung. Yeah, I think I think the dung beetle. Ta-da! Yep, you get a point. Would you have said that, Eleanor? That was yeah, way too easy. That was a way too easy question. <laughs> question. You haven't had your question yet. Hang on. Right. The, you are right, you two. Dung beetle was the correct answer. Eagles are the strongest birds. They can actually lift four times their own body weight off the ground. Gorillas, get this, can lift an incredible two tonnes, which is ten times their weight. But the dung beetles clinch it because they roll around piles of poo that actually weigh a thousand times more than they do so they are certainly the winners this week of the heavy lifting contest right uh, linda and eleanor relative to their body size which of these animals can lift the most a a grizzly bear b an ox or c a tiger oh i'd probably guess that the, the ox and that's what i was going to say Eleanor, because mm. you, that that is an animal that we use or traditionally mm. in in more primitive societies traditionally people have used the ox as a lifting animal haven't they or a dragging animal or or something that would help people carry things so i wonder whether that's the right answer yeah i think we'll go for the ox (laughs) (laughs) no no oh my goodness we can't we can't let the boys win (laughs) (laughs) i think that's something of an inevitability now unfortunately um grizzly bears can shift 500 kilos so half a ton that's 80 percent of their weight quite a quite a lot as strong as an ox as you were sort of suggesting that would have been a good call because they owe those stocky ruminants can lift 900 kilos that's 150 percent of their body weight but a tiger can drag half a ton up a tree and half a ton is twice the tiger's weight so the tiger body size to weight is the strongest of those three so you should have chosen that we'll do round three anyway just to see if the boys can can get a gold medal across the board um this is round three water sports okay so grab your speedos dan and richard you're up Uh, and to make this a fair comparison we are doing this in terms of body lengths per second we want to know who swims fastest in body lengths per second a mako shark a bluefin tuna or the probiotic uh, Delo Vibrio bacterium. Wow. That is, that's a, a tricky one. That is cheeky. Is that, <laughs> the, the bacterium is just going to have little cilia on it, isn't it? It's just going to... See, I think the probiotic, I think, I think it, 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 I was fairly comfortable at that point, I think, but I think the probiotic, I, did, I just got a sneaky suspicion 
if, it's think, talking, if Chris talking about the speed to, to, to size. I think you're right. I think we've we've been consistent. We just go, just go with the smallest one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with it. Going with the bacterium. Yeah. Ta-da! Yes, that's the right answer. Um, Makos are the fastest sharks. They can swim over 74 kilometres an hour. A bluefin tuna will cruise along at a good 70 kilometres an hour. Based on the length of those fish, though, that's about 6 to 10 body lengths a second. But Delo Vibrio, which are these bizarre parasitic bacteria that invade other bacteria, drill holes in them and grow inside them before bursting out and going finding more bacteria, they can swim along at 100 body lengths per second. You're a world record holder, Dan. So are these. They're in the Guinness Book of World Records, I'm told, as world's fastest swimmers. 100 body lengths a second, really quite a feat. Uh, let's see if you can get yourselves uh, a, a little bit of redemption, uh, Team 2, Linda and Eleanor. You might get a bronze medal out of this one. Who can stay underwater the longest? A beaked whale, Croatian Guinness World Record diver Budimir Sobat, or an alligator? I'm guessing it's not going to be the person. No. Um, so it's between the, the, the alligator and the, the whale. I want to say whale, but I feel like this is going to be a, a trick question, given our, t- our track record. What do you think, Linda? Yeah, well, I was going to say the whale. Um, I'm just trying to think about how alligators behave. They can disappear for quite a long time, can't they? I think the tricky thing is, Chris, we don't probably know much about that whale species, the beaked whale. Do you know much about them, Eleanor? No, I don't. I don't. Again, they've got they've got less than. I I think though, if you think about whales, the depth they they dive to, you know, for ages, don't they? To, yeah. to, to feed. Oh, uh. <laughs> I feel like the whale's too easy. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking it could be the alligator because it feels like a trick question here. Okay, well, we'll go with the alligator, but I think it's the whale. Let's go with the alligator. Okay, okay. What is it, Chris? And it's the right choice. Yes. Uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> well done. Hooray, we got a point. Croatian Budimir Sobat has actually just set a new world record this March. He managed to remain underwater for an incredible nearly 25 minutes. A beaked whale is the longest submerging mammal. It can stay down at depths of about two miles for nearly four hours. But the alligators on the top of the podium for this particular race, he has or she has the ability to stay under there for 24 hours if needs be. So congratulations to Team One. Dan and Richard, you get this week's gold medal with three out of three. You are the Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week Award. We'll give a bronze medal to Linda and Eleanor for being jolly good sports. You did get off the blocks with your final answer, so well done. (laughs) Right, let's get back to the questions. Dan, Tokyo, very big time difference from where many of the Olympic competitors are going to live normally. How do athletes make sure they don't get jet lag? Because that would be, I presume pretty devastating for performance it is and it's it's one of those issues that you face when you've had any major major sporting tournament and one of the things that we we understand about somebody's chronobiology is that in essence for every time zone that you cross it takes one day to reacclimatize to that new time zone but most olympic teams will actually have gone out early i mean team gb are actually out already in Japan, and they're in what are called holding camps. And so they go out into the holding camps primarily to acclimatise to the environmental temperatures, but also to actually overcome things like the jet lag. 
So you would hope, unless you've got athletes who are flying in very, very late, that the jet lag shouldn't be such an issue. What does become an issue, partly linked, is, is the natural circadian rhythm of the individual. Because we understand that naturally we perform better athletically later in the evening. So we actually tend to perform very well between about 7 and 11 p.m. In, in, in the evening. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of criticism has been raised. Well, surely that's because that's when, you know, that's when television wants us to, to watch those kind of events. But we saw the actual reverse of that when the Olympics were in Beijing. Um, and of course you may remember back to Beijing, there was that extraordinary American swimmer, Michael Phelps. And Phelps was going for this, I can't remember how many medals it was. And he was going for eight goals in the games. And the American broadcaster, NBC, who owned the rights to the Olympics, wanted to make sure that everybody in America could watch Phelps. So for the first time in Olympic history, they reversed the timings. They put the finals in the mornings and had the semifinals in the evenings. And it was really interesting to note that there were no world records broken in any finals, which took place in the mornings, and world records were broken in the semifinals. That's good to know. So next time we record one of these programmes, you guys, we'll get you all back at 11 o'clock at night to, uh, to lay this down because we'll get an even better performance. I think we're doing quite well today, though. But, um, it's going pretty well, isn't it? It's not bad. Yeah, we, we might have won the quiz if it was 11 p.m. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Before we get into some more questions, it's now time for the fourth and final clue in our Guess Who quiz. I told you this thing sounds like this. I told you that it's bottoms at the top, the top is at the bottom. I also told you that it's got hundreds of ball and socket joints that help it walk. And the final clue is, I am normally about 10 centimetres across, but some of my relatives get much bigger to 36 centimetres in diameter and they can live for hundreds of years. My ancestors go back 450 million years. Dan, any idea? Some form of crustacean, I would guess mollusk muscle something along those lines well you're in the right environment it, it is a sea creature i'll give you that don't worry if you haven't quite clinched it yet i will put you out of your misery at the end of the program eleanor back to the questions and over to you steph is wondering are there any animals that are not mammals but they nevertheless breastfeed their young yes there are several other amazing animals which or amazing species that do uh feed their young um, milk-like substances. So, so I'm going to move away from from uh, the kind of breastfeeding, but into talking about um, the kind of secretion of a kind of a milky substance. Uh, so there's a, a really lovely example of this is there's a species of jumping spider, which is known to, it has a kind of a fold in its underside, which it secretes uh, it's kind of like a, a thick, milky substance, which it actually uses to suckle its young. And uh, so, first of all, it, it, it feeds them entirely off this substance. Um, but then in time, the youngsters start to kind of forage for themselves, but then still are kind of suckled uh, a little bit in the nest. But adorably, um, even after they've uh, fully weaned, then they, they still come back and sleep in the nest at night. Um, so so just a, a really, really interesting example of, of parental care. Um, but it's not just those guys. Um, in a lot of, in pigeons, for example, they secrete this, some people call it a milk, um, but it's uh, in in the kind of crop of the, the parental birds, they kind of secrete this uh, gooey, 
cottage cheese like substance, which they then regurgitate to to feed their young. And, and you know, perhaps there's some parallels with uh, with kind of uh, producing milk in that respect uh, but also cockroaches uh, there's a species of cockroach which kind of is known to do this as well and it produces it gives birth to live young and um in the pouch it, it also kind of provides this uh kind of milky substance so it's definitely not a uh, mammalian only thing um but it is a, a really fascinating example of of uh, kind of parental care Thanks, Eleanor. Absolutely fascinating. I never realised, especially about those spiders. That's amazing. Um, let's go back into space with this one, Richard. It is the, the 50th anniversary of Apollo 15, incredibly. But didn't that team of astronauts get themselves into a bit of trouble taking things to the moon that they shouldn't have done? Yeah, and I think that this group of astronauts, so Dave Scott, uh, Jim Irwin and Al Warden, got badly maligned and they got chosen really as scapegoats by NASA. Uh, for what they did. So every astronaut, uh, as before that mission, took things into space. Astronauts take things into space now in, along with their personal possessions. And astronauts were taking objects uh, uh, like stamps, uh, first day covers with stamps, medallions, all sorts of things. And they have value, of course, once they've been in space, particularly if they've been to the moon and they bring them back to Earth. And this was almost like a, a pension policy. You can see these on auction sites uh, going for hundreds of thousands of, of dollars, some of these things, particularly on the Apollo 11 uh, mission to the moon. Whereas you know, Apollo 15 did the same thing. They did a deal with a, a stamp dealer, took some stamps to the moon, brought them back. The problem was, and how they got found out essentially, was those stamps then went on the market straight away and they were promised that wouldn't happen. So I think they got badly maligned because let's look at the achievements of Apollo 15, which was the first J-class mission, the first real science mission to the moon. It had a lunar rover. It had the first deep space walk. I mean, you know, space walking, we see that on the International Space Station, but this is in deep space on the way back from the moon. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy stuff. Al Warden did this space walk alongside the uh, Apollo capsule to retrieve some samples from the from the command module. Uh, and they also did um, this experiment, uh, proving Galileo. Um, it was, the, it was the, the modern day equivalent of the guinea and the feather experiment, wasn't yeah, it, so that they did? Dave Scott on the moon dropped a, a feather and a hammer and they both hit the surface at the same time. Really cool experiment. You can see it still on the NASA website on YouTube. It's really, I mean, you watch it now, it's still amazing. So you think, no, surely that hammer's going to hit first. And they just hit exactly the same time. Very cool experiment, very cool mission. Um, and it's a shame that they sometimes get remembered for the stamps. They never flew again. Any of those astronauts, they never went up again, did they? And so some people are saying it was that that got them on the on the, the wrong side. Yeah, um, you certainly with our warden, his book, uh, which was is just a great book. His uh, sadly he died just over a year ago. He he wrote a lot about this. He's written very honestly about this in his uh, autobiography. Um, but he also had, and I think this is a problem some of the other astronauts had, he had a life beyond the moon. It's that whole thing. What do you do after you've gone to the moon? Some had problems with alcoholism, other ch- others turned to religion. He had all this trouble with NASA. I mean, he stayed on at NASA, actually, and had a great career at NASA. Never went to the moon again, though. But he had a life beyond the moon and actually, you know, came out of it pretty well. And in court cases, they subsequently won against uh, the space agency, you know, that they were uh, badly treated. 
It's good to have a bit of vindication, isn't it? Back on Earth again and back to our favourite topic of the day, for you, Linda, at least, that's COVID-19. Lots of controversy around at the moment about whether we vaccinate children or not. The UK has elected not to go down this path. Other countries have. So how did the UK come to the decision that they have? Well, we have the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, which is a group of independent scientists, clinicians and other experts who guide the government and what the NHS does in relation to immunisation and vaccination. So we have a medicines regulator that has approved the vaccine for 12 to 15 year olds on the basis of a trial done in the US involving over 2000 young people. And this is just one vaccine, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. Um, but the JCVI have decided that at the current time, they're only going to recommend it for particular groups of children, about 370 thousand of them in the UK. And those are these are the kids who are most at risk from COVID-19. So they might have an immune system that is not functioning uh, as fully as it should. They may have severe learning difficulties, for example, and a range of other conditions. So they're going to vaccinate those young people between 12 and 15. Um, children who are already have those conditions between 16 and 17 are already eligible. But they're also interestingly going to offer the vaccine to those children who live with people whose immune system is compromised. For example, they might have had they might have had cancer treatment, which meant that the parents took drugs to deal with the cancer, which affected their immune system. Internationally, uh, this will be controversial. Canada, the USA, Algeria was the first country. Israel, some countries in Europe are already vaccinating teenagers. I think the rationale from uh, is risk benefit. They're saying there may be some signals that there may be some very small risks uh, from this this vaccine to younger people. But because the risks of becoming unwell with COVID-19 are so tiny for this age group of children, that those risks might in some circumstances outweigh the benefits. I think we have to see how this goes. It's great. These kids are going to get it soon. Um, But in the longer term, we want to reach what we call population immunity, particularly when we have more transmissible variants like the Delta, so-called, we may actually need to vaccinate teenagers in the future because we know they can pick up the virus and we know that they can pass it on. Dan? What is the evidence about long COVID? There seems to be this evidence suggesting that actually children are perhaps more susceptible to long COVID and therefore is there a necessity then perhaps to vaccinate it? So they're not more susceptible to long COVID. They can develop long COVID. But if you look at the studies that have been done, we're starting to get population level level evidence on the incidence of long COVID, which is often defined as having symptoms beyond 12 weeks, beyond having a positive test. Um, So not less likely. It's actually age-related as well with long COVID. You can see that people over the age of 50 are more likely to develop than younger people. But younger adults in particular, we, we estimate about one in six people in their 20s who've had COVID-19 might have long COVID. So kids are less at risk, but they're not, you know, protected from long COVID. There may be small numbers that still get that. Now, let's stay with you. It's interesting that under normal circumstances, when we don't have COVID to contend with, athletes often move around the world and they train at different altitudes, for example, and they do that to boost their haemoglobin levels. There must have been problems with people travelling to do those sorts of things before the Tokyo Olympics. So has that just not been happening or have people found other ways to compensate? Or do you think we're going to see poorer performances this year because people are not as well trained? Gosh, I think that's a massive question. I think in terms of athletes travelling, I think um, some countries are at a natural advantage. I think, for example, the Americans have been able to travel within the US and go to their high altitude training camps, whereas those on the British team 
who used to go out to places like Lofa in, in Austria have not obviously been able to, to, to travel. So there has certainly been less of that. And, and I think what has been going on is using alternate methods. So rather, rather than going to a, a hypobaric environment, they've been using hypoxic based training methods. Um, so just reducing the, the O2 concentration and, and training in hypoxic chambers or hypoxic tents. I think as to the, are we going to see poorer performances in, in Tokyo? I think that's a really, really interesting question because for many athletes, they had been on a four-year plan leading up to 2020. And so the whole of that plan had been a four-year structure to get to that point. And of course, the games were called off in, 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 in April of 2020. And it, it sounds, sounds ridiculous when I say, well, it's really hard then to, to pick up and start again. And actually, that's what many of those athletes have done. Their, their training plans are built in such a way to, to actually, and it, it's, it's like trying to shoot, you know, a, a, a dart or an arrow at a target, which is miles and miles and miles away and hit the bullseye. But you're trying to peak on that one day at that one time. And now what we're thinking is actually... Um, we want you to try, try and prepare for that again. And so I think what we're going to see is I think we're going to see a really interesting games in that I think the favourites or the, the, the favourites that would have been going in last year either aren't there because a lot of them actually retired because that was going to be their final games or they have not been able to prepare. And I think we're going to see a games which, um, which, which is going to be far, far, far more unpredictable. Um, and in many ways, contrary to perhaps what we were discussing earlier on, offers a degree of more excitement where races aren't going to be foregone. There's not going to be these foregone conclusions and you go, well, who's going to win this one? Because it's all been up in the air for, for, for every athlete. And in many ways, it, it's perhaps slightly inappropriate term, but it's almost like survival of the fittest in, in, in the sense of not against COVID or whatever. But in the end, it's who can survive through the, the rounds and the games. Um, through, through, through the actual games themselves. So it's, yeah, very, very interesting. Well, I would definitely be watching the commentary. I love clay pigeon shooting, so I'm going to be interested to see how that goes down. Eleanor, we've heard from Joyce. She's wondering, when animals try to frighten off predators and they get startled, how do they know what will actually scare off that predator? And, and why does that actually even work? It's a deep area of controversy at the moment in the animal behaviour community. The idea is that a prey animal intentionally startles its predator. It could be that it lets out a, a noise which causes a fright, or it could be a colour display, or it could be a smell, or it could even be bioluminescence. There's a, there's a range of different things. The really difficult thing is kind of how is this working? Is it the case that the animal is, you know, for example, there's the hypotheses with some of the um, the lovely moths you see with the big eye spots that um, they are trying to frighten their predator by thinking that there's another predator there, um, and so it could be that kind of that kind of almost mimicry which is causing this kind of surprise, or it could be that it's just the kind of blinding flash of kind of color and noise which kind of triggers fright. But ultimately, it's, it's something which is, is very difficult to measure. But interestingly, this is often tied in with the knowledge of the predators. And so this is something else which is, is currently under investigation. And it could be the case that some of these kind of startled defences work really well on naive or kind of young individuals, but then kind of wear off as the, as the kind of predator becomes wise to it. So it's a really interesting area of, of uh, research. So that's a really, really good question. 
Thanks, Eleanor. Over to you, Richard. George has been in touch and he's been reading these reports of methane on Mars and there were some headlines he spotted, things like uh, Curiosity Finds Potential Alien Burp. He's wondering, what has actually been discovered and is this a smoking methane gun that says there was alien life here? It's one of those classic examples where scientists can hold their hands up and say, we don't know. Uh, The first hints of methane were actually found by uh, the European Space Agency's Mars Express spacecraft um, quite a few years ago now. And now the Curiosity rover, the NASA Curiosity rover, which is obviously trundling along the ground on Mars, has also detected methane. But the Trace Gas Orbiter, so another spacecraft that's in orbit around Mars, has not detected this methane in the same places. So it could be that there's a fault with Curiosity, with the sensor, or there might be methane, but it's not quite making it to the three or so kilometres where the trace gas orbiter can detect it. So there might be methane, there might not, is is the answer to the question. And the reason, of course, everyone's excited about methane is it could be an indicator of life. That could mean that actually something is producing methane uh, the way that we do cows do and the other weird thing is that methane should according to um, the way that mars atmosphere works it should last for about 300 years on mars so again there's a mystery as to why the trace gas orbiter in orbit around mars is not detecting methane if the planet is constantly producing it this would therefore be what some pocket of of microbes that have the metabolic machinery to to turn organic carbon rich stuff into methane and and that would indicate that they are there doing that that's why this matters that's why it matters but it could be some sort of geological process as well so we we really don't so how will they investigate how will they find out um what this is it's like all these things the more experiments you can throw at it the better. I mean, we've got new experiments going to Mars, new rovers going to Mars all the time. At the moment, what's at Mars has not the capabilities to prove one way or the other. But we're just getting these tantalising glimpses continuously, and this has been over the last 10 years, that there is methane there. As to where it's coming from, we probably won't start knowing the answers to this until we can either go to Mars ourselves or bring samples back from Mars in one of these likely areas. Maybe that'll give hints that there is some sort of, or had been, some sort of life there. It's exciting times, isn't it? We watch with interest to see what happens. Remember, we've got a Guess Who quiz running through the programme. I've got one more clue for you. My name comes from an old word, which is Arisius, which means hedgehog. I was going to say sea cucumber when you said hedgehog. Um... No, I have to say I'm stumped. I was thinking sea worms and things like that earlier, but it sounds like a much more complex creature and must be something, as you say, with with links back to very early life. Uh, Dan has, I know Dan's got the answer. He's... Dan reckons he knows what it is. Richard, what were you thinking? I think I know the answer as well. I think it's a sea urchin. Dan? Sea urchin. Yeah, it, it is. It is indeed the sea urchin. Fascinating species, very, very old, and some of the longest lived animals on Earth. Well, that's where we've got to leave it. Thank you very much indeed to you at home for listening to the programme and for sending in the questions. But the biggest thanks of all, of course, to our special panel, Linda Bold, Dan Gordon, Richard Hollingham and Eleanor Drinkwater. Now, next week, as car manufacturer Nissan announces the building of a new super battery centre in the UK and sustainable mining and sensible infrastructure also enter the equation, we're asking, are we ready for the electric vehicle revolution? 
The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.